Hebrews 2, 11 to 13. Again, this is week 12, uh, three months now in the book of Hebrews. And um, we are, um, again, the book of Hebrews, just to recap, was written to the Jewish background believers, people who were Jews at some point, and then they became Christian. And then afterward, they tried to go back to Judaism. The author of Hebrews wrote this book to them to um, pretty much warn them from doing it. And uh, the first 10 chapters, as we said many times before, is arguing the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is superior, and therefore you should not go back to what is inferior. Um, we have seen in, in, in chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, that he's talking about Jesus being superior to the prophets. And from verse 4 of chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 2, he's talking about Jesus being superior to the angels. And this passage we're reading today, uh, verse 11 to 13 of chapter 2, is in the middle of that argument that Jesus is superior to the angels. So let's read these three ver two verses and then we're going to uh, uh, talk about them for just a little bit. Here is what the author of Hebrews says. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Let's just read this phrase one more time. Such an, an amazing and deep mind-blowing phrase that the author of Hebrews said. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Think about that. Think about that. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him and again, here I am and the children whom the Lord has given me. Amen. As we have said before, um, the author of Hebrews' argument that Jesus is superior to the angels. From chapter 1 verse 4 all the way to the end of chapter 1, he is using the Old Testament to demonstrate the superiority of Christ over the angels. And he quoted seven different verses to support his argument from the Old Testament. When he started chapter 2, the first four verses, he took a break from arguing that Jesus is superior to the angels so he can deliver his first warning, first of five warnings that he gave the Hebrews not to go back to Judaism. And then from chapter 2, verse 5, all the way till the end of chapter 2, he's arguing that Jesus is superior to the angel, demonstrated by his humility, by his incarnation. And he's saying pretty much this, that Jesus' humility was temporary in nature, but it was eternal in its purposes. It was temporary because Jesus was put lower, made lower than the angels for just a little while, to be precise, for 33 years while he was on earth as a human being. And then after that, he ascended back on high, and now we see him crowned with glory and honor. And that's pretty much his argument in chapter 2, verse uh, 5, all the way till almost the end of verse 9. And to support his argument, he quoted Psalm 8 uh, and applied that to Christ, that Jesus' humility was temporary in nature. And then he elaborated on all of that to say that in spite of the fact that his humility was temporary in nature, it was eternal in its purposes. And the author of Hebrews went on to list five different eternal purposes that was accomplished through the incarnation and the suffering of Christ. Number one, he tasted death by the grace of God on behalf of everyone. That is verse 9, the very end of verse 9. 
and that was two weeks ago. Now, the second eternal purpose is that he was made perfect as the captain of our salvation through suffering, and that's what we have seen last week. Now, this week, we're going to talk about the third eternal purpose that was accomplished through the incarnation of Christ, and is that he's not ashamed to call us brethren, and that's the two verses that we just read, 11 to 13. And then there's two more eternal purposes we're going to discuss later. Uh, number four, that he might destroy the devil and set free those who are being captive because of the fear of death. That's verse 14 to 16. And the fifth reason is that he can become a merciful and a faithful high priest. And we see that in verse 17 and 18. So today we're just going to stop in these three verses, 11 to 13. One of the things that has been accomplished when Jesus... The divine son of the living God left his glory, came a human, became a human being to be just like you and me, is that now he's not ashamed to call us brethren. And we see that in verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For this reason, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Verse 12 um, and 13 in order for the author of Hebrews to support his argument that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren, he quoted three different verses from the Old Testament to support his argument. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Let's start with verse um, 11. It talks about this, for he who sanctifies. Amen? Amen? Now, this phrase, he who sanctifies, only one person, one other, obviously it's a reference to Christ here, but there's only one person throughout the scripture who said about himself, I am who sanctifies you. Do you know who that is? I am the Lord. I am God, the Lord God who sanctifies you. We actually, it's a pretty common God referred to himself so many times. Uh, this way in the Old Testament. I listed a few here. Exodus 31, Leviticus 20, Leviticus uh, 21, 22, 32, and in Ezekiel 20 and in Ezekiel 37. So you have multiple incidences throughout the Old Testament where God himself is referring and talking about himself and saying, I am the Lord who sanctifies thee. Amen? Or who consecrate you. Yet the author of Hebrews now used the exact same description that used in the Old Testament to this God referring to himself. Now he's using that exact same description referring not to the Father but to Jesus. He said, for he who sanctifies. Right before, right before verse 11, verse 10, we talked about this last week. Talks about the Father. He said, for it was fitting for him. Right? Uh, from whom everything and by whom everything in bringing many sons to glory that he might make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So the person that the author of Hebrews ended verse 10 talking about is the captain of our salvation, right? Who is that? He is Jesus, right? So right now in verse 11, when he's picking up and he's saying for... So he's explaining more how the captain of our salvation is being made perfect through suffering. He's saying, for he who sanctifies, referring to the captain of our salvation. Amen? And point blank, the author of Hebrews tells us at the very end of his book, in, in chapter 13, verse 12, that Jesus is the one really who sanctified us. Uh, Hebrews 13, 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might do what? 
sanctify the people with his own blood, suffer outside the gates. So and a couple of times, a couple of other times, actually, the author of Hebrews say that we are sanctified because of Jesus. So here, when the author of Hebrews say, he who sanctifies, he's using uh, a description that the Father used multiple times, or God used multiple times in the Old Testament to refer to himself, and he has no problem applying that to Christ. Amen? Amen. For he who sanctifies. Now, <clears throat> sanctification, we're big on sanctification here in the Alliance. Sanctification, we know it as a process that starts after you are saved and ends when you are united with Christ in heaven, right? We even talked about this before, that salvation goes usually in three stages. It starts with justification, which is uh, an event that happened when you surrendered your life to Christ and that's when you're justified before God. That's when you're born again. That's when you're saved. Then you start a lengthy process throughout your life called sanctification. And that ends with that glorification when Jesus comes and transforms your body to be like him. This is pretty much the understanding of sanctification throughout the New Testament. With the exception of the book of Hebrews. Because in the mind of the, of the author of Hebrews, sanctification has a, a slightly different meaning that we read about elsewhere in the New Testament. For him, sanctification is a one-time event that happened also the moment you get saved, by which God sets you apart, consecrate you to be his from that day forward. Amen? So for the author of Hebrews' mindset, his way of thinking, the word sanctification literally means consecration. It means that God marked you at a certain event, at a certain point in time, as his. And from that day forward, you are his and his alone. So he's talking about an event that takes place in his mind, the moment of, of justification. You've also been sanctified. You've been consecrated. You've been set apart to be God's. Amen? Amen. He referred to that multiple times. For example, Hebrews 10.10, 10, we read him saying this, For you have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once and for all. You have been sanctified. Is that a past tense or a present tense or a future tense? Have been sanctified. Is that something happened in the past or still happening or going to happen in the future? Happened in the past. He's talking about an event that took place in the past. You have already been done sanctification through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. In his mindset, the word sanctified here means consecrated. You have been consecrated through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross once and for all. We're going to look more into that when we get to chapter 10. But... The author of Hebrews also knows, just uh, this is not in the notes here, that sanctification can also be a process because right after that in verse 14, chapter 10, verse 14, he's saying this, that Jesus has perfected through his death, through his suffering, once and for all, those who are being sanctified. Right? That's in verse 14, right after that in chapter 10. So in between verse 10 
and verse 14, the author of Hebrews is used sanctification in two different ways. In verse 10, he's using as a reference to a one-time event, consecration that happened in the, the moment you're getting saved. But in verse 14, he's saying that Jesus has already perfected those who are still being sanctified as a process that is going on. That's the process of sanctification that we read about throughout the, the New Testament. But for the most part, almost with the exception of Hebrews 10, 14, every other incident, the author of Hebrews used the word sanctification. He's using it as a reference to consecration, an event that happens where you're set apart for God and his purposes once and for all. No wonder then that every time the author of Hebrews is using uh, sanctification, he's always associating that with the death of Christ and his blood. Because we are being set apart because of the cross, because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen? Amen. Hebrews 10.10, by this well, the well of Jesus offering himself on our behalf on the cross, by this well, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. See the connection between sanctification and the death of Christ and his blood. Okay, verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This is the verse I just referred to. But again, notice the connection between sanctification and Jesus dying on the cross and shedding his blood. Hebrews 10, 29, how much worse punishment do you suppose will he thought worthy who has trampled the son of God underfoot, counted, look at this, Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. You guys are with me? Mm -hmm. So sanctification is always associated with the blood. Hebrews 13, 12. Therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people, consecrate the people, set the people aside. How? With his own blood suffered outside the gate. Amen? So over and over and over again, the author of Hebrews' understanding of sanctification is synonymous to consecration that happened only because Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood, and through that act, we are being set aside, we are being consecrated, we are being sanctified. Amen? Amen. For he who sanctifies, and those who are being sanctified, who would that be? That's you and me, right? Are all of one. This is such an amazing statement that the author of Hebrews would make. Are all of one. What is he talking about? One what? Can be one God. It has two options here. We are of one Father, that is God, or we are of one nature, that is the human nature of the flesh or the flesh. The the meaning is vague in the in the in, in the in, in, in Greek, and it can carry both. It can mean we are of one Father, of one God. And the idea here is, is this, that the family relationship that we have with Jesus, Him being the firstborn among many brethren, that relationship was rooted in the grace of God that was manifested on the cross when Jesus died, and we have been brought to glory. And through that, through that gracious act of God, now we are all of one Father, the author of that salvation which the author of Hebrews kind of referred to in verse 10 when he said 
right before that. What did he say? It was fitting for him, God, in bringing many sons to glory that he would make perfect the captain of their salvation through suffering. So he might be referring to the father here in verse uh, 11 and saying, it is the father. He's the origin. He's the one from whom Jesus and us have that family relationship. Having said that, probably the wider context, the whole idea again here of chapter 2 is this, that Jesus' incarnation and him being like us, a human being, served eternal purposes, right? That's, that's the whole wider purpose. It will seem better fit in the mindset of chapter 2 in what the author of Hebrews might have intended here is that the one who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified are all of one nature, the nature of the human race. Because Jesus came down just like you and me and became fully human. And as much as we shared flesh and blood, Jesus also shared the same. Amen? So, yes, it can be both. We don't know which one really he's intended. I would say 70% he's intended. We are of one flesh, one nature. 30% it's God the Father. But your guess is just as good as mine. Amen? But we are of one. That doesn't, whatever it is, if it's the Father or if it's Adam or one nature, we are... We are of one origin. The one who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are of one origin. Amen? Amen. So, two things here. In spite of the fact that we are of one origin, yet there is a massive difference between Jesus and between you and me. Amen? Amen. He is the one who sanctifies. Amen? But you and me are the ones who need to be sanctified. Amen? And that's a massive difference between you, us and Him in spite of the fact that we are from one origin. But not only that, it also that phrase speaks to the humility and the love of Christ. Think about it. Think about it. The one who is so holy, so pure, so set apart, so much so that he even has the ability to sanctify others. Amen? That one. And those who are being so sinful, so marred by the guilt and the shame of sin, so much so that they need to be sanctified. Amen? That one who is so holy and so sanctified, and those who are so marred with sin that they need to be sanctified. They all have the same origin. Only because Jesus came down from heaven to be just like us in every possible way. Amen? What an amazing statement that the author of Hebrews can make about Jesus. Right? The one thing about this, if you don't remember anything today, just remember that phrase. Go home with this. The one who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are of one. Amen? Amen? So profound, so deep. But because we are of one origin, now the one who sanctifies is not ashamed to call us brethren. That's what he said right after that, right? Now, when he said that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren, the author of Hebrews is probably referring to what Jesus has said before in Mark 8 and in Luke 9. What did Jesus say? He said, if you are ashamed of me and my word, I will be ashamed of you when I come with my father's glory in front of the angels. So the author of Hebrews is probably going back to that. And he's saying that 
Because Jesus has become just like you and me, and he's like us in every possible way. He is not ashamed to call us brethren. Amen? Amen. And in saying that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren, here in chapter 2, the author of Hebrews, in a way, is laying down the foundation to what he told us later in Hebrews 11 about the cloud of witnesses that God is not ashamed to be their God. Amen? So in chapter 2, he's laying the foundation for what he's going to say later on in chapter 11. So, Jesus is not ashamed of you. The question is this. Are you ashamed of Jesus? Right? He's not ashamed of you. Are you ashamed of him? Now, when, we, when I ask, are you ashamed of Christ or are you ashamed of Jesus? I'm not, not necessarily referring to somebody putting a gun to your head and say, deny Jesus. And you say, no, I will not. I mean, that definitely implies that. And I hope if you ever end up in that situation that you will not deny Jesus. But that's not really what I'm talking about right here. I'm talking about, are you ashamed of Christ in your daily lives? When you have a chance to talk about him to a friend or a co-worker or a neighbor, and you get so concerned about your own ego and self-image and what people are going to think about you and say, man, if I tell them about Jesus and uh, tell them that they need to become Christians, what are they going to think of me? They're going to think I'm a religion freak and uh, I'm just being pushy and I'm just, you know, not worrying about like, I'm just one of these fanatics, Christian fanatics who just go around, tell people they're going to go to hell. Maybe I should not talk about Jesus because I don't want them to think badly of me. And you think, you know what, I'd rather have my self-image that they think of me as a, a cool, funny person than thinking of me as this fanatic religion person who always talk about Jesus. If you do that, if you pass on chances to witness and tell people about Jesus, and I'm just like you in that boat, I'm not saying I'm better than you, we're all in it together. If I pass on a chance to, to tell people about Jesus, indirectly, I am declaring that I am ashamed of him, right? I don't want to be known as the person who's always talk about Jesus. And if you as well pass chances to tell people about Jesus, we are indirectly, we might not be vocally cursing his name, but we are indirectly declaring that we are ashamed of him. Amen? Think about it this way. If a king... Walking by his city or his town. And then he sees a bunch of beggars that sitting on the side of the road. Nobody even cares about them. And the, care, the king out of cares and concern for them. Decides that you know what. Next week I'm just going to leave my palace. Leave my wealth. And I'm going to go down. And I'm going to hang out with these beggars for a whole week. And this is what he does. He uh, go buy cheap food food, cheap clothes to be just like them, and he doesn't, whatever, shower and just do everything, let her beard, his beard grow, do whatever it takes to be just like them. And then, I mean, obviously, he's still known that he is the king, and then he comes approach these bunch of beggars who, like, really worth nothing, and he say, hey, guys, I, I am the king, but I want to be just like you, and I want to be hanging out with you for the next week or so, because I really deeply care about um, what's going on and your life situation. Can you share with me? Can you talk to me? I'm really genuinely concerned about you. And then these bench of beggars start, start telling the king, man, you stink. Just go away from us because we really don't want to be seen with you because you really look awful. Can you imagine that situation, right? 
But that's in an essence what we do to Jesus. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords who humbled himself to be just like us in our mess, in our sin, in our awfulness. Yet, yet, he's not the one who's ashamed of us. We're the one who can end up being ashamed of him. If that's not messed up, I don't know what can be messed up. Amen? This is just messed up as it gets. But let's just, I'm encouraging all of us, let's not be ashamed of Christ. He's the one who should be ashamed of us because we're the one who's filthy and sinful. He's the one who's holy. So if he's not ashamed of us, let's not be ashamed of him. Amen? Amen. So he's not ashamed to call us brethren. And isn't that what Jesus has done multiple times throughout his ministry? He called us brethren so many times. Look at this, just a couple of examples. Matthew 12, 48 to 50. But Jesus answered, but he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who is my brother. So the context here is Mary, the mother of Jesus and his physical brothers are coming to see him. He's preaching or sharing. And then somebody comes to him and says, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. And what did Jesus do? He say, look, who is my mother and who is my brother? And he stretches out his hand, that's Jesus, toward the disciples. And he said, here is my mother and my brethren. Amen. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, sister, and my mother. So he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Amen. Matthew 25, 40. Now that's the end of time. The king is setting aside the goats from the sheep. And he's doing his final judgment. And here is what he's saying. Matthew 25, 40. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, in as much as you did it to the least of my slaves. Right? In as much as you did it to the least of my servants, right? Right? What does he say? My brethren. In as much as you did it to the least of these of my brethren, you did it to me. Not my slaves, not my servants, not the one I should rule over them, to the least of my brethren. He is not ashamed to call us brethren. Amen? couple of other times, Matthew 20, 18, John 20, 17, Romans 8, 29. All these incidences where Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. Why? Because he became just like us. The one who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Amen? Amen. Now, in order to support his argument that we all of one and that Jesus is not ashamed of us, the author of Hebrews quoted three different incidences, three different scriptures from the Old Testament to back up his argument here. Each one of these incidences start with, I will, like the first one, I will declare your name. The second one, I will put my trust in you. And the third one, it says this, I, here I am, and the, the children whom the Lord has given me. So it all has that emphatic, I do this, I will do this. And he applied all these three verses to Christ to support his argument, the author of Hebrews' argument, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. The first quote, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praises to you. You guys know where is that from? We talked about it before. 
Psalm 22, correct. We spent five weeks in Psalm 22. And if you remember, Psalm 22, we start talking about the agony of the cross. That's most of the psalm. And then ends up talking about the victory of the cross at the end of the chapter. And this verse right here is in the middle of, or the very end of the chapter where it talks about the victory of the cross. And here Jesus is saying, because of the cross, because I died, because I provided the salvation for the fallen human race, I declare your name to my brethren. They are my brethren because of what I have done for them on the cross. And in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praises to you. Amen? The word assembly here that the author of Hebrews used, obviously he wrote it in Greek, he quoted it from the Septuagint, which is Greek, and it's the Greek word ekklesia, from which we get the word church, right? That's the, the Greek word for church. So literally, the, you can translate that verse like this. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the church. I will sing praises to your name. Amen? So Jesus here, when he uses the word assembly, which is in that context, synonymous to brethren, right? He say, I will declare your name to my brethren. Who is these brethren? In the midst of the assembly, it's the assembly, it's the brethren. I will sing praises to you. In Jesus' mindset, when the author of Hebrews' mindset, when he applied that verse to Christ, the brethren are the church, right? This is the people who are washed by the blood of Jesus, whom Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren. Amen? This is not just for everybody in this world. Jesus is not ashamed to, be, to call them brethren. This is only for those who are washed by the blood of Jesus, who are members of his living church. Amen? Amen. Now, the second quote is this. I will put my trust in him. Now, this is a difficult quote because it doesn't seem to fit the idea here that, you know, Jesus is not ashamed to be our brother. How, how is that fitting to anything the author of Hebrews is trying to say? That phrase, I will put my trust in him, can be a quote from one of three options in the Old Testament. It's either Isaiah 8.17 or Isaiah 12.2 or Second Samuel 22.3. All in Greek has the exact same wording. I will put my trust in him. So which one is it that the author of Hebrews has quoted? It's probably Isaiah 8.17. Why? Because the very first quote that he used after that, when he said, here I am, and the children whom the Lord has given me, that's a quote from Isaiah 8.18. So probably he's quoting the whole passage here, Isaiah 8.17 and 18, and he just quoted it as two different quotes. You guys are with me? All right. So when he say, I will put my trust in him, what does that mean? How is that fitting the idea that Jesus is not ashamed of uh, calling us brothers or brethren? In the original context, that passage, Isaiah 8, 17, Isaiah was experiencing trouble and persecution. Uh, he was rejected. His message was rejected. So he's declaring in that verse in the Old Testament that he will trust God in spite of the trouble that he has going through. Now, the author of Hebrews applied that to Jesus to say that Jesus is just like us in every single possible way. And just like Isaiah needed to trust God in the midst of his trouble, Jesus, as, our, as a human being, as our captain of salvation, also needed to trust God 
in his trouble as well. That's why he's not ashamed to be called our brother because he has experienced trouble and he needed to trust God just like Isaiah did in the Old Testament. And because he was just like us, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Amen? Amen. Now, if that quote is from Isaiah uh, 8.17, then why did the author of Hebrews separate it that quote from the one that right behind it which is here I am and the children whom the Lord has given me by saying and again he said it seems like he's breaking it and he's using it as two separate quotes in spite of the fact that he's quoting just one passage in the Old Testament he's not really quoting two different verses from two different backgrounds he's really quoting one part yet he's breaking it as if he's quoting two different parts so why is the author of Hebrews doing that and does that mean that he's not really quoting Isaiah 8.17? He's quoting from a different passage? Probably not. And the fact that he's separated by, and again he said, doesn't mean that he's quoting a different passage. As a matter of fact, it seems like this is the style for the author of Hebrews. Later on in chapter 10 verse 30, we, we read him saying, for, you know, it, it is written, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hand of the living God. And again, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I can't remember the exact quote, but something like that. And yet he's quoting one passage from Deuteronomy uh, 32, 35 to 36. Yet in his quote in Isaiah 10, 30, he's breaking it by saying, and again, in spite of the fact that he's quoting the exact same passage from the Old Testament. So that is a pattern for the author of Hebrews. He does that. That's how he writes. He can quote one passage from the Old Testament, yet break it by saying, and again. You guys are with me? So that might be more his style than making a theological statement. But having said that, the author of Hebrews also might be trying to introduce a new idea by quoting that second part from Isaiah 8.18. In the first part when he said, I will trust in him. He's saying that Jesus is like us because he needed to trust God just like we do. And in the second part, he's having the idea or introducing the idea that we are not now the children of God who were given to Christ. And because it's two different idea, he, ideas, he just used the phrase, and again he said, because he's breaking it by the idea, not just by the passage from the Old Testament. You guys are with me? Yeah. Okay. Now, the last quote he said is this, Here I am and the children whom the Lord has given me. Again, how is that tell us about Jesus not ashamed of calling us brethren? In the original context, again, Isaiah here was declaring that he will trust God in spite of his trouble. And he's saying, you know, God, I will trust, I will put my trust in you. And then right after that and say, here I am and the children whom the Lord has given me. In Isaiah's context, he's either referring to his actual physical children that the Lord has given him, which their names tell us about trusting God and having a faithful remnant who will trust God no matter what. And it can also include his disciples. Anyways, the word children in Isaiah's context really referring to uh, a remnant, a group of people, not just one person, but a group of people who will be faithful to the Lord no matter what kind of persecution they can endure and they will just 
trust God no matter what. That's the original context. The author of Hebrews is applying that to Christ. And he's saying Jesus, in a way, is the person that we look up to. He's our role model. He said, I will trust in him. And we, in the same way, going to trust God. And we're going to be the faithful remnant that we, we will endure any persecution, any trouble for the sake of God. We share with Christ that exact same attitude. He trusted God in spite of trouble. We trust God in spite of trouble. And because he is just like us, our role model in every possible aspect this way, therefore he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Amen? So the, the Old, Old Testament, Isaiah 8, 17 and 18, not directly saying that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren, but implies that by saying that Jesus is just like us. He's our role model who is just like us in every possible way. And because of that, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. He experienced trouble. He had to trust God just like us. Therefore, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Amen. Here I am. Now, this is words that the author of Hebrew is putting in the mouth of Jesus. And he's saying, here I am and the children whom the Lord has given me. Amen. We don't read that anywhere else in the New Testament. That we are children of Christ. That we are sons of Christ. Right? It's just a strange concept that the author of Hebrews is introducing here. But the fact that we were given to Christ, that is not a strange concept. We actually talked about this in Isaiah 53, when we talked about how God will reward Christ. And he said, God said, I will give him a portion of the strong and of the numerous, right? We talked about that in Isaiah 53, that we were given to Jesus. The believers were given to Christ as a reward because he has endured the cross and he has accomplished that salvation. Amen. Jesus himself talked about that, that we were given to him by the Father in, in John 10 and in John 17. A couple of times we already talked about that in the past. Amen? Amen. So that is one of the eternal purposes that was accomplished through the incarnation of Christ. He became just like us in every possible way. And he's not ashamed for the very reason to call us brethren. Amen? Amen. Now I want to challenge us today that we should not be ashamed of Christ. Amen? Amen? That we will declare his name, that we will talk, talk about him in front of other people, and that will not be ashamed of him. Remember what Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and my word, I will also be ashamed of you when I, when I come with my glory or in my glory with the angels of God. Amen? Amen. Let's close our eyes and pray.